Well, let's turn to the book of Genesis. And I want to start by reviewing the first three chapters, because this is a story going on here. This is history that took place. Moses is writing this in a way to teach us crucial truths about God. So here's what we've learned so far. Genesis 1 and 2, we have seen a beautiful display of God's goodness in that out of nothing, God spoke and created a massive universe, created a solar system, and planet Earth, beautiful planet Earth with oceans and eagles and sunsets and banana trees and just a beautiful planet that we get to live in. And then he created Adam and Eve. Think about it. Out of nothing, he gave them life, amazing bodies, gave them each other, and best of all, gave them the joy of knowing him. And he placed them in the beautiful Garden of Eden so that they could know the blessing of his fellowship and goodness forever. And he said they could continue to know God's goodness forever if they did one thing. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which means, don't think you can decide for yourself what is good and evil. Trust God. Trust your creator. He made you. He knows what is good and evil. Trust him to decide for you what is good and evil. So there we are at the end of chapter 2, Genesis. Beautiful universe, solar system creation, Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, perfect goodness. There they are. But in chapter 3, as we saw last week, something horrifying happens. Adam and Eve become proud. They decide that they want to be like God. They want to make decisions for themselves. They want to decide for themselves what is right or wrong. And so they decide to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They turn their backs on God. They decide for themselves what is right or wrong. They sin against God. And that changed everything. God brought his curse upon Adam upon Eve, upon the serpent, Satan, upon the whole world. Even though God is perfectly good, he's also perfectly just, and so his curse came. And at the end of chapter 3, the whole world is under God's curse, facing God's judgment forever. Absolute catastrophe in terms of the story of creation. Or so it appears. We have to remember three promises that God gave in chapter 3, verse 15. Do you remember those promises? So crucial. I'm going to review those because this is the foundation of where, where everything's going now in God's plan. Three beautiful, encouraging, hope-giving promises. First promise, God says, I will put enmity, E-N-M-I-T-Y, enmity, division, separation between the serpent, Satan, and Eve. Now, what does that mean? Well, in chapter 3, there was no separation between the serpent and Eve. Eve was following the serpent. The serpent wanted Eve to sin, and Eve wanted to sin. The serpent wanted Eve to be like God, and Eve wanted to be like God. So, up to that point, there was no separation, no enmity between the serpent and Eve. But God says, I am going to put enmity 
between the serpent and Eve. What does that mean? It means that God is going to look down upon Eve, whose heart was hard towards God, who was sinning against God, who had turned her back on God, who was no longer interested in God, who wanted to live her own independent life. Thank you. And it means God is going to look down upon her, and he's going to love her. He cares about her. And in astonishing goodness, he's going to bring his power upon her and change her heart. Subdue her rebellious will. As Ezekiel says, take out her heart of stone and give her a brand new heart of flesh. Warm, soft, supple flesh, which says, what was I thinking? What was I? I'm so sorry. Father, forgive me. Look at my sin. Forgive me. Change me. Restore me to fellowship with you. God's going to change her heart. She will repent and put her trust in God's mercy. And because of what Jesus would do on the cross, God will completely forgive her and restore her to himself. Do you see the goodness of God in that promise? That was the first promise. Second promise. God says he's going to put enmity between the serpent's offspring and Eve's offspring. Now, who are the serpent's offspring? Well, the serpent's offspring is all of us, has been all of us. Every human being, by nature and by free choice, has chosen to rebel against God and sin against God and ally ourselves with the serpent, with Satan. And so we've all been Satan's offspring. But God says he's going to put enmity between the serpent's offspring and Eve's offspring. So who are Eve's offspring? The book of Revelation says it's this massive number of people that no one can count from every nation, tongue, and tribe whom God will look upon, just like with Eve, and love them. And at great cost to himself, the cost of him coming to earth in the person of Jesus and being tortured for hours on the cross, receiving the judgment we deserve for our sin upon himself, at great cost to himself, he's going to change our hearts just like he changed Eve's heart, subduing our rebellious will, taking out the heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh which is soft and warm and supple, and we're going to say, what were we thinking? How could I have sinned against such a good God? Father, forgive me. And because of what Jesus would do on the cross, or for those who were living after Jesus died, for what Jesus did do on the cross, God will completely forgive sin. And so out of the offspring of Satan, God is going to save a vast multitude that no one can count from every nation, tongue, and tribe. They will be Eve's offspring, and God will put a division between the serpent's offspring and Eve's offspring. One last promise, third promise. This is beautiful. God says, I won't quote it, read it for yourself. But the point is that Eve's great, 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 great grandson, a man in the in the line in the one of the offspring of Eve, is going to crush the serpent's head. Is going to crush Satan's head. Satan is going down. Jesus is going to crush Satan's head. He will get wounded in the process, but Satan will be destroyed. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. 
Jesus was wounded on the cross. He did die, but he rose again. He was not destroyed. But in dying on the cross, Satan was destroyed. Jesus destroyed Satan by dying on the cross. So we come to the end of chapter 3. The whole world is under God's curse. The whole world is facing God's wrath. We are all offspring of Satan. But there's these three beautiful promises. And so we're waiting, saying, how is God going to fulfill these promises now as we move into chapter 4? So we're all saying, right? Here we go. So today we want to cover chapters 4 and 5. And as I studied these two chapters, what I saw was that chapter 4 describes Cain, who was the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, describes Cain and many of his offspring. And as you read this section, we're going to see this is going to teach us about sin and its power. We've all been dead in sin, like we sang about, sang about this morning. We're going to understand just how dead we were in sin by looking at Cain and his offspring is going to teach us about sin and its power. That's chapter 4. Then starting in chapter 4, verse 25, going through the rest of chapter 5, the focus shifts from Cain and his offspring to Adam and Eve's thirdborn, you'll understand this in a moment, Seth and many in his lineage, many of his offspring, but very different because Seth and many of his offspring loved God, worshiped God, trusted God. So we're going to see the power of God's salvation setting people who were dead in sin like Cain and his offspring free so they become like Seth and his offspring. That's where we're going. Buckle your seatbelts. Are you ready? Here we go. So what do Cain and his offspring teach us about our sin in chapter, chapter 4. First truth I saw is that our sin makes us ignore truth. Start reading in verse 1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. That means they had sexual relations. And she conceived and bore Cain, their firstborn, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, this is a shocking statement that she makes because the last time we saw Eve in chapter 2, she was shaking her fist in God's face. I'm not interested in you. I'm going to decide myself how to live. No, thank you. Sorry. Goodbye. That's where chapter 2 ended. But here we see an entirely different heart in Eve. What happened? the first promise of Genesis 3, verse 15 happened. God had put enmity between Eve and the serpent. He brought about division. He had subdued her rebellious will, changed her heart. She repented, put her trust in God's mercy. She was completely forgiven because of what Jesus would do. Her heart has been changed. And we presumably uh, assume that Adam's heart has been changed in this process as well. So Cain was born into a home that was full of love for God and the knowledge of God. That's what kind of home Cain was born into. But look at what happens in the next verses. Verse 2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, 
But for Cain and his offering, he, the Lord, had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Here both Cain and Abel bring offerings to the Lord, but God is only pleased with Abel's offering, not with Cain's. Now why? I think you can notice why by looking at how Moses describes them differently. Notice that Abel's offering was of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So the very first of the flock he offered to God, the very choicest cut of meat offering as a burnt offering, saying, I praise you, God. This is the, the very best I have. You are worth it all. I want to show your honor, show my love for you by giving you the very best I've got. That was Abel's heart. But look at how Cain's offering is described. It's just an offering of the fruit of the ground. So Cain, or Abel brought the best offering he had, but Cain is like, you know, any old zucchini, any old pumpkin, let's just, let's just get this worship thing over with. I mean, I want to get on to doing something fun. Abel brings the very best. Abel loves worshiping God. You are worth everything. Here's my best. Cain, just like any old thing will do, let's get this over with. So Cain had no interest in worship, which is showing that he is dead in sin, just like Adam and Eve had been and like Abel had been before God changed Abel's heart. Now think about it. Cain was raised in the same home as Abel, a home that was full of truth about God, but Cain's sin made him ignore the truth about God, made him ignore anything Adam, Eve told him about God. So sin makes us ignore truth about God, and that's been true of all of us. Think back before God changed your heart and saved you. You heard the gospel. I mean, I grew up in church until I was 16 years old. And I mean, I heard it, I understood it, but I was not interested in it. Okay? A lot of the things I was interested in, I was not interested in, in God. Sin makes us not interested in the truth of God. And that's what we see happening here with Cain. Second, sin makes our hearts hard. Start with verse 6. And don't miss the goodness of God in verse 6. The Lord said to Cain. So here Cain offers this lukewarm, wimpy offering. God's not pleased with it. Cain gets angry. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? That is, why do you look so sad? If you do well, which means, Cain, if you'll repent of your lukewarm worship, if you'll ask me to forgive you, if you'll ask me to change your heart, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, here's a warning, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. Ask me for help, Cain. Sin's in you. You could be changed. You could be forgiven. You could be helped right now. I'm here. I'm asking you to change. Otherwise, sin's going to keep growing in you, keep growing in you, keep growing in you. So did Cain listen to God? No. Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Probably something like, let's go out into the field, Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Envious, jealous, 
angry, ignoring God's appeal. If you do well, Cain, you'll be accepted. Ask me for help. Ask me to forgive you. Ask me to change your heart. God himself comes to Cain, urges him not to be angry. But Cain's sin made his heart hard. Cain did not want to ask God for help, did not want to confess his sin. And that's been true of all of us. That's what sin does. Now, you might ask, well, don't we have, like, free will? And yes, we do, in the sense that free will means we can do whatever we want to do. Every human being has that. The problem is that sin makes us not want God. Sin makes us not want God. You can do whatever you want to do, but if your sin is making you, I don't want God, then you're not going to go to God, right? You're still free to do whatever you want to do, but the one thing you don't want to do is come to God. That's what it means. We were dead in sin. Didn't want God. And Cain is a perfect picture, and, and God wants us to see this. In chapter 4, he wants us to say, whoa. Sin makes us ignore truth about God. Whoa. Sin makes our hearts hard towards God. We were really lost, weren't we? That's where Moses is going here. Third, Sin makes us resist God. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, do you see the goodness and the love and the mercy of God? He's coming back to Cain again. Cain's just killed his brother. God could have just destroyed him. Done with him. First murder on planet Earth. Kill the murderer. Would have been totally just, right? The Lord said to Cain, Cain, where's Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? So again, God's pursuing Cain, appeals to Cain. Cain, where's your brother? And at this point, Cain should have broken, said, what have I done? I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Change me. I'm lost in sin. Help me. And God would have because of what, what Jesus would do. But sin makes us resist God. Remember the times you resisted God? Sin makes us resist God. So Cain lies. I don't know where he is. And then Cain scoffs. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I his babysitter, God? Just totally blows God off. Sin makes us resist God. Fourth, sin brings God's curse. Now I'm not going to read all these verses. This is verses 10 through 17 for the sake of time, but read them on your own. But here God brings a curse against Cain, saying, Cain, you will no longer be able to grow food, and from now on you're going to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. You're going to be separated from me, from God. And so sin brings God's curse. We saw it back in chapter 3. We see it here again. We were all under God's curse because of our sin. Tremble, Grace Church. This was us. We were Cain. I was Cain. You were Cain. Fifth, sin makes us disobey God. Okay, now we move from Cain to Cain's offspring. Verses 18 through 19. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. 
Now, at the end of chapter 2, God has told us, through Moses, that marriage is between one man and one woman. That's God's plan for marriage. Lamech knows that. Here he disobeys God. His sin made him disobey God. He didn't care about obeying God. He didn't care about honoring God's commands. He was eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right here, choosing for himself what was right or wrong. And sin makes us disobey God. And we have all been Lamech. Didn't marry two wives, maybe, but we've all disobeyed God. Haven't we? No one here is guiltless. We all are guilty, just like Lamech was. Sixth, sin makes us boastful and unjust. Verses 20 to 22, I won't read those, but here, even here in his goodness, God allows man to start ranching. God allows man to start developing musical instruments. God allows man to start working with iron and bronze. But, verse 23, we're back to Lamech's sin. Look at what we read. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for just wounding me. I've killed a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Okay, what's going on here? A young man had hit Lamech, and Lamech killed him. Completely disproportionate response to being hit. Do you see that? And then he boasts about this to his wife. And not only does he, his wives, and not only does he boast about this, but he says, you know how God told Cain, I'll protect you by giving sevenfold vengeance as protection? Ha, huh, I'm better than God. I'm going to make 77-fold protection if anybody threatens me. So he boasts about killing somebody who hit him, and he's boasting that he's better, more powerful than God in the vengeance that he will give to anybody who harms him. Sin makes us boastful and unjust. And that's what we see here with Lamech. So do you feel where Moses is taking us in chapter 4? He wants us to, to kind of plumb the depths of just how powerful is sin, how dead were we in sin, how lost were we in sin. And he wants us to understand sin makes us ignore the truth, it makes our hearts hard towards God. It makes us resist God. It brings God's curse. It makes us disobey God. And it makes us boastful and unjust. So God looks down from heaven, and there's humanity. There we are. Hard against God, resisting God, rebelling against God, disobeying God, justly under God's curse. And at this point in the story, we could think it's all lost. Sins covered the earth. Adam and Eve, God's changed their heart. Abel, his heart was changed. He was killed. What's God going to do? And the next section, chapter 4, verse 25, through the end of chapter 5, we see God having done something amazing, loving, beautiful. Look at what God does. The question is, what do Seth and his offspring teach us about God's salvation? Cain and his offspring, chapter 4, taught us about our sin. Seth and his offspring, chapter, end of chapter 4 through chapter 5, teach us about God's salvation. 
So what do we learn about God's salvation? First of all, God's salvation causes us to pray. Love this. Chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, what people began to call on the name of the Lord? People who were sinners by nature and by choice, people who had been resisting God, people whose hearts were hard towards God, people who were not interested in God, people who were under God's curse, people who deserved God's judgment. So how did those people who didn't want God start praying to God? It's because, just like with Eve, God looked down from heaven and he loved them with a costly love, a blood-bought, cross-suffering love. And he loved them. And because of what Jesus would do on the cross, he reached down from heaven and he changed this heart and this heart and this heart and this heart. And they were set free from the power of sin. They were convicted for their sin. They said, forgive me for my sin. Wash me clean from my sin. Change my heart by your power. And they put their trust in God's mercy. And because of what Jesus would do, they were completely forgiven. Their hearts were changed. And they started to call upon the name of the Lord. God, we love you. What a Savior you are. My heart's changed and restored to you. You are my joy. You are my life. Help me with this. I worship you. Thank you for this. I confess my sin for this. They're calling upon the name of the Lord. When God's power changes you, one of the results is that you will start calling upon the name of the Lord. Remember how that happened? When I was 17 years old, God, I was dead in sin, and God changed my heart. And one of the strange things I started to do, I, I, I don't remember the first time, but I started going on walks around my neighborhood to pray. I just loved walking and talking to God. Thank you for this. You've been so good to me. Lord, help me with this. Forgive me for what I did an hour ago. Strengthen my walk with you. Save this person. I just started walking and praying. And not that you have to start walking and praying, but you'll start praying because you have the God of the universe looking upon you with love, saying, what do you need? How can I help you? Come talk to me. When you're saved, that's what happens. Salvation causes us to pray. Second, God's salvation makes us want relationship with God. This is kind of a long next section, but start reading in verse 1 of chapter 5, and I'll, I'll explain what's going on here. Verse 1, chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. So this starts like a, like a brand new, it sounds like a brand new beginning here, doesn't it? And in a sense it is. This is a brand new beginning. God's salvation is being unfolded. He's showing us what happens when he saves people. So this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the like God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So here the focus, no mention of Cain, because here the focus is on Seth and godly people that are in Seth's lineage. 
The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So here's this brand new beginning showing us godly people in the line of Seth. Now, one quick comment about this genealogy. When you read it on your own, you'll notice people live a long time, right? 500 years, 600 years, 700 years. We don't live that long anymore. What happened? Moses tells us in the next chapter, come back next Friday. We'll find out. So I'm not going to read all these verses, but let me just go through the genes. So Adam was the first generation mentioned in verse 3. Seth, the second generation, born in verse 3. Enosh, third generation, born in verse 6. Verse 10, Canaan, the fourth generation. Verse 13, Mahalel, the fifth generation. Verse 16, Jared, the sixth generation mentioned. And then verse 18, Enoch, the seventh generation mentioned. And Moses tells us a lot about Enoch. And what I want you to notice is that the seventh generation person in chapter 4, remember what his name was? Lamech. Remember who Lamech was? A murderous, boastful polygamist. That's Lamech. The seventh generation person in chapter 5's name is Enoch. What do we learn about Enoch? Verse 18. When Jared, Enoch's father, had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had many other, had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Moses wants to make sure we got it the first time, in case you missed it. What did Enoch do? He walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Okay, contrast, Lamech, seventh generation, chapter four, Enoch, seventh generation, chapter five. Enoch is totally different from Lamech. Enoch walked with God. Why did he walk with God? Because it was fulfillment of chapter three, verse 15. God was putting enmity between the serpent's seed and Eve's seed. God looked down upon Enoch, just like he looked down upon you who are trusting Christ. And even though our hearts were hard against God, we were resistant towards God, we wanted only to sin, we wanted nothing to do with God, we were running away from God, God loved us with a blood-bought, cross-suffering love. And he changed our hearts, subdued our rebellious wills, gave us hearts of flesh that loved God. And we saw our sin. We confessed our sin. We put our trust in God's mercy, put our trust in Jesus. We were completely forgiven and restored. And one of the results of that is that you love God. You love God. So if God's walking over there, you're going to want to walk over because you want to walk with him. You want to walk with God. That's a picture of beautiful, close, heart-to-heart, intimate relationship relationship. Do you understand that when God changes your heart through what Jesus Christ did, you can have relationship with God. You can walk with God, heart and soul, talking, fellowshipping, communing together, pouring your soul out before him. I'm struggling here, Father. Help me. I'm disappointed about this, God. Strengthen me. God, I'm, I'm fearful about this situation. Give me wisdom. 
forgive me for this sin. Walking with God. When God saves a heart that's dead in sin, that heart will start to walk with God as a result. And that's what's happening here. Third, God's salvation gives us eternal life. Now, see if you agree with my interpretation where I'm going here. I'll just throw this out there. You weigh it. You study it. Enoch is the only one in this genealogy who is not said to have died. The only one. So what happened to him? Read verse 24 again. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch never died. At the end of his life, before he died, God took him to heaven to be with him. Same thing that happened to Elijah. Remember the story? Okay. So why does God do this? What's the point? God does nothing just arbitrarily or by accident. Why? And why did Moses write it here? Why did the Holy Spirit have Moses write this here? It's not to show us that if you're saved by God's power, you won't die. We know that because Adam dies, Eve dies, Seth dies, Noah dies. You see death all through the, the whole Bible. So it's not to show us that if we're saved, we won't die. So what, what is the point? I think it's to give us a clear picture right here in chapter 5, the fifth chapter of the first book of the Bible, that death is not the end, that there is eternal life. There is eternal life. It doesn't mean we won't die, but it means that when we die, we will, through Christ, because God's changed our hearts and we're trusting him, we will go to heaven. There is eternal life. And that's why... I'm tagging this as God's salvation gives us eternal life. doesn't necessarily keep us from death, but it will give us eternal life. Does that make sense? You ponder that, see if, that, if I'm going the right direction there. Okay, one more aspect of God's salvation. Fourth, God's saving power gives us faith in his promises. Start in verse 25. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech, a different Lamech, Okay? I'll hear that, a different Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord's cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Again, this is a different Lamech from the Lamech in chapter 4. But Lamech, this Lamech also was, had been dead in sin. But again, just like with Eve, just like with Enoch, just like with all of us who are trusting Christ, God looked down upon us, rebellious us. We were his enemies, and he loved us. He cared about us with a blood-bought, cross-suffering, costly love. And he changed the heart of this Lamech. And when God changes your heart and you confess your sin, you ask to be forgiven and have your heart changed, one of the results is you'll trust God's promises. And Lamech knew that the curse was upon the earth and that God had promised to lift the curse off of the earth. And he says that Noah is going to have a crucial role in lifting this curse. And we will see what that crucial role is next week as we study Noah. Now, just to be complete, let's keep reading to the end of, of this chapter. Verse 30, Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years 
and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that's where this chapter ends. So in this chapter, God wants to teach us about what his salvation does when it changes us. So let's just recap chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4 shows us how serious our sin was. Are you feeling the seriousness of our sin? Our sin made us ignore truth about God, made us not interested in God, make us not submit to God, make us resist God, made us not obey God, made us under God's curse, made us proud and boastful. We were dead in sin. Our hearts had no interest in sin. We could do whatever we wanted to do, but we didn't want God. And left to ourselves, that was never going to change because we didn't want it changed. That's where we all were. But then the beauty of chapter 4, verse 25, through the end of chapter 5, we see God's goodness and God's love in how he can take people who are rebellious against him, shaking their fists in his face, walking away from him, turning their backs on him, and he looks upon them with love and with mercy and with blood-bought, costly compassion, and he changes their hearts. So they see, what am I doing? I've sinned against a glorious, beautiful, awesome, loving God. Forgive me, God. And God forgives. Hearts are changed, all because of what Jesus does. And the result is we start to pray. We want relationship with him. He gives us eternal life, and he gives us faith in his promises. Now, three takeaways from this, these two chapters. Three things I want you to consider. Three words God is speaking to us. Here's what I mean. First of all, some of you know that just like God did with Cain, God's doing the exact same thing with you this morning. He's coming to you and he's saying, what's going on? He came to God and he said, what have you done? Where's Abel? Right? And there's Cain, think about your sin. And, and I, I'm sure there are some of us here in this room today, and God is coming to you and he's saying, what's going on? Look at the sin you're committing. Look at how you're turning your back against me. Look at what you're involved with. Look at what you're dabbling with. And God is coming to you with love and with mercy and with compassion, just like he came to Cain, and he's saying, what's going on? And what, the reason God's coming to you, and you're feeling it right now, is because he wants you to say, you're right. I'm sorry. I confess this. I repent over my sin. Forgive me, please. That's why God came to Cain. That's why God is stirring this in your heart right now. God's here saying, with great love and tenderness, What's going on? What are you doing? If you do well, it'll all go well. If you do well by asking me, help me, forgive me, change me. And that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to some of you in your hearts right now. What's going on? Confess that sin. Repent of that sin. I will meet you. I will help you. I'll give you everything you need. That's the first thing God is saying to some of us this morning. Second, to some of us, others of us, God is saying, I promise that I have power to change your heart. I have power 
You have felt hopeless because of how uninterested in God you've been. You've maybe felt despair because you feel really far from God. Maybe you feel totally discouraged because sin has such a grip on you. You're thinking, I could never get rid of that. I could never have a a heart that loves God. And in yourself, you never could. But God's coming to you and he's saying, I promise I have power to change you. And if you will simply turn and look to Jesus Christ, help me. I turn from my sin. Wash me clean, forgive me, change my heart. If you will do that, he will forgive you and change your heart. You will be transformed right here, wherever you are when you do this. He will transform you because he loves you. He cares about you. He's calling on you. I promise you, I have power to change you. So do this. Turn to God. Look to Jesus. Trust Jesus. He will forgive you and he will change you. So to some, God is saying, what's going on? To others, God is saying, I promise I have power to change you. To others, God is saying, worship me for my saving work, merciful work, gracious work in Jesus Christ. Here's what I hope you're seeing from these two chapters. When you were saved, you put your trust in Christ, you repented of your sin. But what the Bible teaches is that even your faith in Christ didn't come from you. Even your repenting of your sin didn't come from you. You didn't want to have faith in Christ. You didn't want to repent of your sin. Even that was a gift to you from God. In other words, salvation is completely from God, 100% gift from God. All you brought to the table was your sin. And he gave you faith. He gave you repentance, which completely humbles us. We really were lost. We really were dead in sin. When Paul says that the good work God started in you, he will continue. Paul really meant that. It was the good work that God started in you. Who started the good work in you? God did. We didn't want it. I don't want any good work. Oh, what am I thinking? God, you're glorious. Where did that come from? He started a good work. And he will do the same for all of you. But for those of you who've experienced this, oh, I just pray you can see more clearly than maybe ever before how lost you were, how, how dead you were at sin, and how incredibly loving and gracious and merciful God was. He looked down upon you. He looked down upon me. We were his enemies. We didn't want him. We were rebelling and sinning against him. And he looked upon you with love. Cross, suffering, costly love. And he changed your heart because of what Jesus would do on the cross. And that's why you're a new creation today blood-bought brother, blood-bought sister. Let's worship God for his saving work to us in Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. God, I pray for those who are pursuing sin and to whom you're saying what's going on I pray that right now they would turn their hearts to you and say, help me. 
Help me. Forgive me. Change me. I pray that you would do that right now. Lord, for those who feel hopeless or despair, who feel too far from you, who feel like sin has too strong of a hold on them that they could never get rid of on their own, help them to see that you are promising them that you have the power to change them. If they will just look to Jesus Christ and say, help, that you will do so. Touch them. Have them look to Jesus Christ right now, I pray. And Lord, for those here who are trusting Christ, those who you have saved by your power, those whom you put enmity between them and the serpent by your sovereign grace, I pray that right now we could worship you for your saving, cross-suffering, cross-suffering, blood-bought love in Christ. We worship you, Lord God.